Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. I'm Duffy Dixon. Joining me is Jennifer Strahan. She is the Chief Operating Officer of Soar Vision Group. Jennifer has partnered with more than 100 health systems and businesses across the U.S. to help them transform their strategic and administrative operations. Not with us this week is uh, CEO Ben Sawyer, but we have someone else joining us. Lisa, why don't you go ahead and introduce her? Yes, so we are so excited to introduce Lisa Council. So she is our brand new Chief Commercial Officer. She technically starts Monday day but we figured what is just a date so why not just come in early and have fun on the show yeah Since ben is out having fun in in arizona this time um so she comes to us with uh, a ton of experience so her clinical background she's a nurse from critical care i believe in terms of her specialty she was with mckesson for almost 20 years and we are super excited that she's with us with soar Welcome. Thanks, Jennifer. We're happy to have you. Now, we've talked to you before. You're a familiar face, so. I have been on the radio, but I was a guest at that point. That's right. Well, yeah. welcome to the team. We Thanks. appreciate you. Also joining us is Bob Peterson. He is the CEO of Millinocket Regional Hospital in Maine. Now, from his words, as we talk about his his bio, um, he says about his what he does, we may be a bit old school, but we believe that delivering care with compassion personal attention and careful diligence never goes out of style. Now, Bob, you have a long list of credentials yourself, but your hospital has also been voted one of 62 critical access hospitals. That's known as a CAH. Um, you were one of the CEOs to know in 2017, and that's from Becker's Healthcare. That's a pretty big honor. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate you. I appreciate you doing your homework and uh, reading that. <laughs> I did. I read it all. I was fascinated. So you guys, Bob is uh, a fascinating colleague that I've had the privilege of knowing over the last couple of years. And I think you are going to be so excited to get to hear from him with his passion of everything that he does in terms of supporting rural America and critical access. So we are excited to hear about some of the successes that they've done in their hospital I guess, Bob, the first thing I want to ask you about is what is a critical access hospital? Well, critical access hospitals are a, um, an interesting vehicle, an interesting classification that was created by the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. So let me give you a little bit of background on critical access hospitals because it will lead into uh, what we're all about and why we're here and hopefully why, why we will stay here. So. During the late 18, 1980s and the early 1990s, there were multiple closures of small rural hospitals. So the causative factor was Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates were uh, creating some of these financially-based closures. So large hospitals, uh, they had a high volume of Medicare and Medicaid patients, and they had also had a high percentage of commercially insured patients, and they were doing pretty okay during this time frame. Uh, their high volumes created economies of scale, and any losses they had on the governmental payers uh, could be recovered by cost shifting to the commercial payers. However, we small rural hospitals didn't have either one of those luxuries. Uh, due to lower volumes and limited mem numbers of commercially insured patients, 
rural hospitals were facing financial challenges that they couldn't overcome, and many had to close their doors. Um, and that's a huge loss for the communities they serve, both from mm-hmm. a medical perspective and, and an economic perspective. And Congress had to do something to quell the closures. So it was, pretty, it was a pretty neat uh, effort on Congress's part to uh, fix this problem with the Balanced Budget Act of 1997. So to do that, um, the Balanced Budget Act created critical access hospitals, created that designation, and we were paid on a cost basis. So this was meant to assure that um, these small hospitals were at least paid what it cost them to provide care to Medicare and Medicaid patients. So that made some sense. And to to qualify for a critical access designation, a hospital had to be located more than 35 miles from the next nearest hospital. And for us, uh, the closest hospital to us here in Maine is 40 miles, but the closest tertiary hospital um, is 75 miles. So we, we're pretty rural. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, yeah. So they had to be located 35 miles from the next nearest hospital. They had to provide 24-7 emergency services. They had to provide acute inpatient services, but uh, the bed size was capped at 25. So the great news is um, these, this designation worked. The hospital closures that were happening in the late 80s and early 90s stopped, and that, that's awesome. Now, these hospitals still have financial challenges, and they, they occasionally had red ink, but their situation was significantly improved by the critical access designation. So that's the, that's the quick background on critical access hospitals. So one of the things that might be helpful to relate that back to the audience is talking a little bit about the value that these critical access hospitals bring, especially from the sake of in rural America, because this provides a service that, like you mentioned, it could be 75 miles to the hospital. I think you said to a tertiary hospital. Uh, And so how does how does the critical access hospitals really support and encourage value with all of the residents in the community? So I'm gonna I'm gonna go down a path that's uh, a little bit interesting here. Um, w- when we fast forward to 2019, we do have members of Congress, and, and actually let me back up one 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 section. Right now we're faced with um, hospital closures again, and it's small rural hospitals suffering similar to what they did in the uh, 80s and 90s. So since 2010, the number stands at. 102 rural hospitals have closed. So that's a crisis in my mind. Wow. 102 hospitals have closed in the United States since January of 2010. So what that tells me is, um, similar to what happened in the 80s and 90s, that problem has, has returned. And Congress only recently has started to think about that. So let me tell you a little bit about Congress. Um, some members of Congress have suggested that critical access hospitals like mine be converted to freestanding emergency rooms. Some of the member of, members of Congress have even said the, the way by, by changing the critical access hospitals to freestanding emergency rooms, rural residents will have at least some access to medical services. So that's a little hard to digest and a little hard to take. So um, let me talk about that for just a second. What I hear in that statement is that urban folks will have all the medical services that they need at their disposal, and rural Americans will just have to live with much less. That, yeah, that's, so, that's not acceptable. And right. yet they're so, still paying the same amount of taxes, I'm sure. Correct. Our tax rates are exactly the same as those uh, folks that live in urban areas. So that's a little scary. 
So let me be clear on this. A freestanding ER is not a hospital, and it's not a substitute for a hospital. So because we have a full-service hospital here in the woods of Maine, we have surgeons, anesthesia providers, critical care nurses, emergency nurses, respiratory care services, and full diagnostic capabilities like laboratory services and radiology, and we also have a fully stocked pharmacy available to our residents 24-7. So because we're a hospital, we have all of these services. And why is that important? So when critical patients come into our emergency department suffering from things like trauma, cardiac events, strokes, sepsis, internal bleeding, um, and, and any other life-threatening condition, they have immediate access to those professionals because we're a full-service hospital. So being a full-service hospital makes a difference between life and death. And for me, I've witnessed this play out on multiple occasions since I've been CEO here. Um, we may be a small rural place, but we have uh, our share of traumas. We have um, snowmobile accidents. We have car accidents. We have gunshots. And because we are a full-service hospital, we've been able to handle those, and many of the people have had positive outcomes. But if we were only a freestanding ER, we're left with maybe a physician, some very trained nurses, to try to stabilize a patient and get them 75 miles to the nearest hospital, and they may or may not make it in, in transit. And you also, so you are also it, in it's Maine. It's important to maintain these critical access hospitals as critical access hospitals and not just as freestanding ERs. And not to mention, too, also just from the sake of being a pivotal uh, business in the community. Because how many, I don't know what your numbers for employees are, but I would imagine you're also a pretty significant um, organization in your community that gives jobs to, to your uh, economy. So like many small areas, we, the town that I work in was a mill town. We had uh, two large paper mills in Millinocket and East Millinocket, and both of those closed um, between 2010 and 2014. And so the, the largest employers closed, and, and that created a couple of problems. One is the number of commercially insured patients went down. Um, the revenue and the incomes of the people that live in this area went down. And the hospital, by default, became the largest employer. Mm -hmm. So right now, we provide um, about 250 paychecks per week, um, and most of those are people that live right here in these towns, and they spend those dollars right here in town. So we're not only a medical provider, but we're an economic engine. Mm -hmm. And if a town like mine suffered the loss of the, the closure of two mills and also the closure of the hospital, which has fairly high paying salaries, um, that can decimate a town economically and it can take years for it to recover. Absolutely. Now we're going to uh, ask our listeners if they want to, as we get into what SOAR Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation, what work is being done with Bob, we uh, invite you to go on the website uh, www.leaderdialogue.com and right there you're going to see the organizational hierarchy of needs and we always go back to this because this is the framework that all businesses use when they're coming up with their strategy and that execution so if you're following along get on that and then Jennifer, as you and Bob and Lisa talk, it'll make sense to people where you are. Yeah, so let's just put this into perspective for the listeners when you're thinking about that hierarchy of needs. So again, remember, when you're thinking about that hierarchy, it's embedded by leadership and it's supported in that. But essentially, it starts with strategy deployment. It is impacted by financial performance, customer value, organizational effectiveness, and colleague engagement. And so if we're talking about these critical access hospitals that are in 
rural America, which uh, from some of the research I was looking at, about 20% of Americans live in rural America. So this isn't just for a small number of people. It's a significant number, 60 million people in the U.S. If you're thinking about that relative to customer value in particular, and your, your residents and your community can't get access to care, that has a direct impact on what kind of value can we bring to those customers. Right. And so one of the things that I think would actually be really interesting to talk a little bit more about, Bob, would be that forces you guys to have a little bit of a different strategy in supporting your residents and your your patients because you can't necessarily compete as you mentioned based on volumes or just cost shifting to the the payers or individuals who can pay you really have to focus on how do we create a very unique experience and niche in our community that helps people want to come to us and not drive 30 miles to the next hospital or 40 miles to the next hospital. So can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the ways that you guys, your your organization has tried to create a unique experience for your patients? Well, I mean, that, that's a, it's an excellent point because our strategy right now is to be sure that um, we can meet the needs um, of any uh, patient that's in our community, and we want them to think of us first and always come here. Um, if we do need to draw on our partners in the urban areas for specialty services, we'll guide the patient there. But before that, we want everybody to come here first and be well served. And one of the things that, that is very critical in uh, these small rural hospitals is your reputation. Mm -hmm. And the level of service, um, the level of empathy, the level of compassion that you give to a patient when they arrive at the hospital, um, that makes them come back. It makes them feel like they're a human being. It makes them feel like they're being listened to and treated appropriately. And if you miss the boat on that, then you lose the entire battle. I mean, our patients in our community need to know that first and foremost, we're here for, their, for them and to meet their needs. We've got, we've got to be very careful that um, in, in every encounter, every single time that we touch a patient, we need to make sure that that happens. So let me give you a little bit uh, of background on that. Just this week, this, this happened um, earlier in the week, a couple from out of state needed emergency care. Um, the husband had fallen and he had fractured his shoulder. And it was a pretty bad fracture. It was, it was displaced mm. and it obviously had to be surgically repaired. So he was seen in our emergency room. He had emergency, stu he had imaging studies. He was diagnosed appropriately and efficiently. And when all was said and done, the couple asked us to control his pain and to immobilize his shoulders so that they could get home. And they lived in Pennsylvania so that they could get home and deal with the repair um, of the injury there. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. We have that request Locally. on occasion. So it was very interesting that after they arrived back home, um, the patient's wife called me uh, to comment on the care that her husband received. And she couldn't believe the way they were treated throughout the hospital. And she, she started with, from the moment we entered the building on arrival for registration, through the triage process, to the emergency room staff, to the radiology staff, to the doctors and nurses that cared for her husband, she says, I, I can't believe the genuine care and concern um, for your patients. She said it was apparent in every individual that worked here that they were completely committed to patient care and the needs of the patient first, and everything else was secondary. She also stated, which was really cool, she said no, other, no hospital in her home area, no hospital close to her, could even come close to the care and compassion that she and her husband experienced here in my hospital in rural Maine. 
So that tells me we're on the right track is mm-hmm. that I love when patients come from somewhere else <laughs> and they say, the way you deliver care in Millinocket is very, very different than the care that we can get anywhere in the state that we live in. That tells me that these are special places that make a difference in people's lives. Now, our community, hopefully, have come to expect that. Well, that's just the care we get. Um, But it is unique, and it's really cool when somebody from the outside says, this is something special and you need to preserve it. Well, and Bob, what's interesting is what you just said, that experience that that couple had is the the hospitals and the the healthcare providers we have on the show that is what they all want mm-hmm. i mean we talk about that that experience because people can shop around when they do have numerous choices they still yes. are looking for that top to bottom from the moment they enter to the moment they leave so jennifer is it obviously bob knows what he's doing mm-hmm. is it easier for him because it's a smaller hospital it sounds like he has other challenges anyway right mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a balance there, and I'm sure Bob can actually talk to this too because he's also been in, he's had roles in, in leadership levels at large organizations. But typically there's a different style of, of challenge, exactly as you're mentioning, right? Um, financially, there are things that are much harder to be able to to be able to be successful with. You've got, when you talk about, we talk into our hierarchy of needs, we talk about tapping into demand, but there's only a set amount of demand other than can you broaden your services but the area, again, when you're talking about rural America, is somewhat limited with it is what it is in terms of the number of residents you have, unless some other big industry comes in and actually builds up your community. But on the flip side, culture is one of those things that you can really try to work on um, and usually have a little bit better success in smaller organizations because it does maintain that family feel and that's one of the things that when I've talked with Bob in the past it's been something they've really worked on a lot over the past five years is that culture and and Bob I'd love to hear your experience on what has that process been for you guys well you know um, I think uh, many times that culture eats strategy for breakfast Mm -hmm. is that (laughs) if you don't have the right um, foundation and you're not providing the appropriate care, and you're not focused on the patient, then everything else you do, including your financial analysis, is is for naught. So one of the things that, that we are very, very committed to is to taking care of, of each and every patient like it's our own grandmother or grandfather or father or mother. Is that, you know, if you're, if your grandparent or grandparent, grandmother or grandfather, mother, father, came into our hospital, um, what kind of comments do you want to hear back from them? We want, it, we want them to say, I can't believe how nice the hospital was. I, I, it was clean. It was efficient. Your staff was attentive. Um, they explained things to me well. I always knew what was coming and, and what was to be happening next. And that's the kind of care that we want to deliver. If we do that, then I think we can certainly capture all of the volume in this community and for people, especially self-insured companies that are looking for cost-effective, well-done hospital care um, that will actually attract people from outside our normal primary and secondary service area. And we have experienced that. That's part of our strategy is that Mm -hmm. if we are doing an exceptional job, then we should be able to draw patients from a little bit further away because they hear about the care that we deliver. Definitely. So let me give you an example of something, and uh, Jennifer and I have spoken about this before. But this is uh, uh, an event that took place here um, about two years ago or so. Um, These are 
the type of events that actually are commonplace at Millinocket Regional Hospital. And they're commonplace at other small hospitals, but it makes these hospitals special. And it, and it makes it so we need to preserve them and not let them close. So here's what happened. Um, a very nice man, he was in his late uh, 80s, uh, he came into our emergency room and he had medic multiple medical issues. Um, he knew that he had reached the end of his life and he also knew that his organs were beginning to fail. His family knew that and his doctors knew that. Um, he and his family elected to be admitted to our hospital for comfort care. And the plan was that we would keep him comfortable um, through pain medication and as alert as possible and allow him to quietly slip away with his loving family present. And we do this quite often. And he, so he was admitted, very, very nice man and a very, very nice family. And on about his second day in the hospital, one of our hospitalists rounded on him and his family. So he asked the man if he was comfortable and if his pain was being controlled. And the patient was very complimentary of our staff um, and his family was likewise very appreciative of all we were doing for them to help them through this difficult time. Our doctor uh, then asked the family, you know, is there anything else I can do um, to make this easier on you? Is there anything else that you needed? And an adult son, uh, who was probably about his, in his 60s, spoke up and said, well, there is one thing that would be great, but I'm sure it probably isn't possible at this point. So our doctor asked him and pressed him a little bit and said, well, what do you need? And the son replied, it would really be great if my father could play the piano one more time. <laughs> wow. So he explained to our physician that music had been a huge part of his father's life. Um, his dad's college degree was in music. He mm -hmm. taught music. He gave lessons and he played at church. Um, and the dad also made music a huge part of their family life. So our doc replied, well, let me think on this a bit. <laughs> so our doctor, who's a really great guy, and he has the utmost dedication to his patients, immediately left the hospital and went home. He went home and retrieved an electronic keyboard <laughs> and returned right. to the hospital. So he set the keyboard up in the patient's room. He provided a chair for the patient to sit on, and he stood back. So the man's sons helped their father out of bed and gently guided him into the chair. Once the man was seated, he closed his eyes, he tipped his head back, he had no written music, and he began playing. He was clearly gifted, the music was truly outstanding, and it, it a, a crowd kind of centered around the door, and his family was all in the room. And he played for several minutes, and after you know a number of minutes, his energy waned, and he stopped and his sons returned him to bed. He was very calm and quiet that night. And on the next day, he died peacefully with his family present. Mm -hmm. wow. So it appeared that the music put him in a calm and peaceful place and that he and his family could now move forward with what they were facing. Wow. But the moral of the story, the point of this story is, this is the kind of thing that happens in small hospitals where patient care is paramount. Yeah. where we focus on patient care this is the kind of thing that results from it so what we did for this man at the time of his death and what we did for his family to get through his death were something that is not typically replicated in urban more mechanized more industrialized type hospitals and this is the type of hospital for me it's a great place for me to end my career because we're delivering old-style medicine 
and we are <laughs> truly touching the patients that we serve. To me, that's our strategy. If we can do a better job and provide care of this nature, and we do this kind of stuff virtually every day, if we can provide that, we have every right to be successful. But if we can't even do that, then we have no right to be in business. But Jennifer, I would say to you that that should be something you can do at all hospitals. I mean, because in that hierarchy of needs, it always comes back to, you know, it should, Mm -hmm. much of it comes back to the client, the customer, the patient, and people on the front lines knowing that. And it sounds like Bob is the kind of CEO who has set forth this strategy, Mm -hmm. call it strategy, but obviously this is a man, Bob, you're a man with a huge heart, and that, we've talked about leaders, if you are that kind of person, that will be your that will come across in your leadership style what i what i really love about um the environment that i work in is that none of what we do is scripted now do we have a focus on that and do we talk about it yes but the people that we have working here they don't think about bob they don't think about um you know what we're all about they do what they feel is right and the care that they get and that that type of empathy that they show to our patients and and their families is genuine and that's the really cool part, is that it is, it's, it's genuine care. It's not made up. It's not scripted. I mean, there's, there's companies out there that script care, and you know, they, they dictate exactly what you're going to say to a patient on every encounter. We don't do that. It's, it's very, very genuine. Um, so it makes it very, uh, a very awesome place to work, and I've, I've never, ever once not looked forward to coming to work when I'm driving here. That's awesome. So one of the things that stands out in my mind is a term that we throw out in healthcare all the time. And we say we're patient centered and we miss the mark on that so many times in hospitals. But what a great, what a great example of how that really is about patient centered, right? It's really around what is it that that patient needs at that time? Not what can we do because we feel like this is what should be happening, but what is it that the family and the patient agency wants us to do? So you've created a culture of colleague engagement, which really is promoting holistic medicine, Mm -hmm. which really the big guys often miss. Yeah. And so to the point, Bob, you mentioned kind of old style medicine, and I don't think that's just to clarify, because I, I want listeners to know that's not that you're delivering care that's subpar or less than standard that, that the levels of medicine. The, the needles are big, giant, old yeah. ones? No, no, that's not what we mean. That's no. not what we not mean. That old, not, not that kind exactly. of old <laughs> But the fact that you've not lost the heart of medicine, which is, I think, sometimes what mm-hmm. we tend to, to lose. Well, I, I think that, that that leads me to, to one other set of comments. and um, Well, two. First of all, um, there's a lot of push for smaller hospitals, and you'll see it in the language of the ACA, is that um, that merger with larger hospitals is the way American medicine is going. And, you know, that works for a lot of hospitals, and it's a, it's a good strategy, and it can, it can actually save a hospital that is in um, uh, danger of failing. However, the one thing that I get concerned about is I want to be sure that the, the rural routes Mm. of critical access hospitals doing the things that we do is not lost when you're taking your um, instructions from a large, more corporate-based type hospital. So if, if the merger can take place, but the rural feel stays in play and, and the, the rural decisions on what our residents need and what they desire stays in place, then that's one thing. If not, you know, you've got 
kind of urban America telling rural America how to deliver medicine. And we think we do it pretty well. Yeah. And we don't really need a lot of help uh, with that. But the other thing I would like to point out is that um, I'd like to challenge uh, my CEO colleagues, and, and this, is a, this is a challenge for any CEO um, in any, con- any hospital in the country. And it doesn't matter if it's a big hospital or a small hospital like mine. And that is, um, my challenge to them is to get out of your chairs and visit patients um, for an hour a day. Mm-hmm. That's my challenge. Um, we as CEOs need to leave our spreadsheets behind. We need to go meet the actual patients that we're responsible for. When you start making decisions, knowing the faces of the people that will be affected by those decisions, you tend to improve your thinking and most likely you improve your performance. So to me, this is a very human business and we need to put humanity back in the forefront and we need to rededicate ourselves to the people that we serve. So one of the things that that I do here is I I am out of my chair at least an hour a day up on the floor visiting patients. Now, big hospitals, you can't visit all the patients, but you can certainly visit some of them. And when you understand the human dynamic, what they're going through, what they're suffering with, um, now when you're making decisions about services to keep, services to cut, things that you're trying to arrange from a business perspective, you think about the faces lying in those beds upstairs and you tend to make better decisions. So my challenge is out of your chair and up on the floor. Can I get an amen? Yes. (laughs) I want Bob Bob Peterson for president. There you go. (laughs) I love it. So, Bob, this is great. And just to kind of talk, wrap around, wrap up some of the conversations that we've had, because we've we've talked through so many different pieces. What an incredible value that you and your team are bringing to your community through serving as a critical access hospital, but also as an employer, as a place for families to rely on in times of need and not losing, I love what you said, the humanity in it. That That's such a great component. And when you don't lose sight of that, it naturally allows you to deliver on that organizational hierarchy of needs by talking through customer value. What a great example of leadership to hit colleague engagement because you're out there doing those things on the front line every day. And so you're not saying one thing and then acting in a different way. You are truly living the the role model of behaviors for leadership, which is a great way to also go through and talk about how do you, uh, how do you actually implement the components of the Baldridge performance excellence framework in day-to-day operations. And so much of what we've talked about is it all starts with leadership. Right. Whether, whether you're comfortable with that or not, that's how it starts out. So, Bob, you are an excellent uh, example of that. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate uh, you guys having me and uh, allowing me to state my piece. I love <laughs> it. Thanks, Bob. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you, and I want to I thank appreciate- every- I want to thank Appreciate every- it very much. Thank you. I want to thank everyone else, too, for joining us on Leader Dialogue, brought to you, as we mentioned at the top of the hour or half hour, is Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. You can listen live to a new show every Friday at 1 Eastern Time, or you can go and listen to us anytime. The best way is visit leaderdialogue.com slash podcast. On behalf of Jennifer, Lisa, and myself and our producers, Trey and Mike, join us next time on Leader Dialogue here on Business Radio X.